This is the Bristol Cable. You or I or anyone else in this room could go out tomorrow and sell our services to Bristol Council to risk assess their high rises, and that would be entirely legal. And they were advised not to do that by the fire service. New Labour went ahead and did it anyway because the alternative is imposing cost on industry. This is a live recording of our speaker series, where we sit down with writers, academics and activists from across the UK, putting the Cable's work in the national conversation. I'm Alex Turner, a journalist at The Cable, and in this episode, Ruth Day, a Bristol-based housing activist and campaigner, is in conversation with Peter Apps. He's a journalist and author of the Orwell Prize-winning book, Show Me the Bodies, How We Let Grenfell Happen. This speaker series talk took place on the 3rd of November, just days before Bristol City Council suddenly evacuated one of the city's high-rises over fears it was structurally unsafe. About 400 people who were living in that block, Barton House in Barton Hill, have been left homeless as a result. Within this talk, Pete explores how we got here, how social housing and building safety were neglected over decades in the UK, leading to a crisis in affordability and pushing people into unacceptable and sometimes dangerous housing conditions. Ruth begins by asking Pete about the Grenfell inquest. Yeah, sure. It was a very long process, the inquiry. I think the first hearings were in spring 2018, and it, it didn't actually wrap up until about this time last year. So it was four years, and it was four years which also took in the entirety of the pandemic. So a lot of attending it was actually sitting in my children's bedroom on a sort of makeshift desk watching a YouTube stream. But around that, I was interviewing people and, and talking to, you know, experts in the, the various issues that were being brought up. Also, as you said, a lot of people who were affected by it, people who, who'd lost family members, people who'd lost their homes and their community. And yeah, you, you couldn't really spend that long doing that and talking to all those people without being pretty um, moved by the impact that this had on so many people and for such a kind of deep and life-changing way. Yeah, and how rooted was your work in the community around Grenfell Tower? Obviously, you talked a lot to, like, people who lived in Grenfell, but also, along with that, how much did you work with, like, the local community around Maverick Road? Yeah, Obviously, there's so many people, not just who lived in Grenfell Tower, who knew people and, and loved people who lived in the tower, but um, on the wider estate. And not all of them want to engage with the media necessarily, but there, there, there's certainly lots who do. And they're a very powerful group of people. They're a powerful group of people in terms of they know the story that they want to tell and they have a strong voice. In it. And so for me, a lot of the time, it's just the case of listening and recording what they're saying, really. And yeah, we work together on, on the book, but also sometimes with their campaigns. They're often consulted by government, but the governments often looked to them to rather stamp something they really wanted to do anyway. And Grateful United have never wanted to just be that, yes, we'll, we'll cooperate and say yes and be grateful. They've always wanted to genuinely influence what is being done in their name. And so I've helped a little bit when there's technical questions around the sort of building regulations changes that government want to make. But a lot of that work they just do themselves, to be honest. Yeah. It's really powerful having like tenant-led organising. That's also important. And obviously there was tenant-led organising pre-Grenfell and there was that really like haunting blog post that someone wrote effectively a premonition of the fire and just like the years leading up to that of tenants raising their voices about the issues in Grenfell and then yeah. it being sat on and crushed down until a tragedy did in the end happen. Yeah, I mean, that, that post is really fascinating. It was a blog written by a guy called Eddie Dafarm who, who had lived in Grenfell for, for years before the fire. And I can't remember the exact wording off the top of my head, but it was something to the effect of we, we believe that only a, a, a huge tragedy will expose the, the incompetence and... Um, disregard with which we treated by our landlord. And he had a picture of a tower block on fire, which he attached to that block. Now the thing is when Eddie wrote that, he didn't have any idea that combustible cladding had been put on the outside of the building. He had no idea of the, the size of the risk that, that the tower faced, but because of the way he'd been treated, he understood that something was going to go wrong. He, he got that impression that the, the fact that the concerns were being neglected so frequently and he could see so many ways in which the building was deteriorating, he got the sense that a disaster was coming. 
And so the word premonition is pretty much what it was, really. And I think he's quite haunted by that as well. He has said that because he feels like he maybe then did know something and he had to ask himself what he did with that knowledge. And, and it, it, it's, it's, it's been quite difficult for him, I think, that he issued that warning before the fire. Yeah, I imagine. But there are also people who were complicit who did know that this was going to happen. I think the thing, like reading the book and like the decades and decades of this material coming on the market and all these different tests being done that showed that the book, like the material was extremely flammable and that being sat on and sat on. And then the book also mentions like fires that happened throughout the decades as well in different buildings. There was one in, was, I think, Lambeth for Sutherland in South London, Lackanau House, where people did die, obviously not as many as Grenfell, and then tragedies in like other places around the world where thankfully no one died, but it showed the, the combustibility and just the damage of that material. But obviously people kept sitting on it. They kept being like, oh, it's not going to be a problem. Oh, we'll sort this out in the future and not really changing the legislations. Could you go through more about like that whole process of like cover up and why you think people kept trying to cover up that this material was dangerous? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a pretty startling story to be honest. And it's, it's, if there's one message I wanted to get across with the book, it is that in, in the words of the lawyer who, who's led the questioning at the inquiry, there was nothing unknown about what happened at Grenfell Tower. Everything that was needed to be known to stop the tragedy was available to the people it needed to be. It just wasn't acted upon. And to just run through some of those things, you mentioned Lacknell House, which is a tower block in Camberwell in Southwark in South London. There's a fire in 2009 which spread via combustible window panels. It killed six people, three of them children, one of them a baby who was only 21 days old at the time of the fire. And that resulted in, in an inquest which I actually attended as a very junior reporter. And the inquest said to the government that the, coroners have the power to, to write what's called a prevention of future death report. And the coroner made several recommendations, but the two critical ones for the government were review building regulations with specific regard to external fire spread and install sprinklers in aging social housing blocks. She said that in April 2013. Behind the scenes, we now know that government officials said that, and this is a, a direct quote, we're only legally obliged to respond to the coroner's letter. We don't have to kiss her backside. And so what they advised the government to do was send a reply saying, yeah, we've noted your concerns. We've got periodic review of children regulations due in 2016-17 and we'll address these issues there. By the time the fire started in the, the kitchen on the fourth floor of Brentford Tower, that review hadn't even begun. The consultation papers which needed to be published in order for them to start that review were, were still sitting on a minister's inbox. And that was despite, I think, 21 letters from an all-party parliamentary group led by uh, a retired firefighter pushing the government to, to act faster. And that's just the government, and that's just one small part of the government's role in this. It goes a lot further back, like you said. In 2001, the government paid for tests, large-scale fire tests on cladding systems. They wanted to research the risk of cladding systems. One of those tests involved the exact product that would later be used on Grenfell Tower. It's a 30-minute test you set fire to a, a mock wall system and, and observe what happens for 30 minutes. They had to stop it after nine minutes because the flames had extended 20 metres above the top of the rig and they were afraid for the safety of the people in the laboratory. And a report went to government saying this material is on building. It's arguably permitted by our regulations and we think our standards are appropriate in order to make sure it's not used elsewhere. And that was 16 years before Grenfell and nothing was done. And that's just, again, that's just government the company that made and sold it had testing from 2004, which showed materially the same thing. They repeated that testing in 2011 and 2016. Internally, they sent emails saying that in one of them, they used the, the expression, we are not clean. They said they needed to keep the fire performance of the material very confidential. And they directly instructed their salespeople to lie about its, its true fire performance. And as a result, it stayed on the market and, and kept being clad, buildings kept being clad in it. So, you know, between the sort of corporate world and the, the state, there was more than enough knowledge to prevent buildings being clad in this material, but it just wasn't that yeah. Why do you think they didn't do anything about it and were so keen to cover up? The, 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 the reasons are kind of like, unfortunately, pretty mundane. For the manufacturer, they were aware that on a construction project, you generally go through an exercise called value engineering, which means 
searching for the cheapest product. Their product in its most combustible form was a, a couple of pounds per square meter cheaper than the nearest competitor. And that meant they had a small advantage over them and they would keep getting specified. So they, had, they would win jobs that their competitors wouldn't win. And that's why they didn't want to take the product off the market. And that is pretty much documented and admitted by the representatives of that company. So for, for them, it's really, it's just, it's, you know, they would call it, it's, it's a desire to maintain market share. But I think simply way of putting that is just greed. For government, they, the, the title one book has shown me the bodies because when people went into meetings with the officials responsible for this area of building regulations and said that we might need tougher regulation, the response that they often got was show me the bodies. That's literally word for word what um, some of the civil servants would say. And that meant what they were referring to is that since the 1980s, fire deaths have fallen in this country year, year on year. Governments will only regulate if a lot of people are dying. <laughs> if people aren't or they can't see the evidence that they are, then they don't think it's worth imposing additional costs on business. And so on the corporate side, you had a desire to maintain market share. And on the government side, you had a reluctance to take any sort of preventative step. They will only act once people are dying. Yeah, well, it seems very linked to neoliberalism, deregulation, that those kind of ideologies becoming more and more prevalent in the political sphere pretty much since Thatcher. And it's all big about, like, the market should be as free as it can be. And it's all, yeah, as you said, all about money rather than actually thinking about social homes being good for people and, like, people being protected in those homes. Yeah, you, you can trace the history back to Thatcher and Michael Heseltine as a Secretary of State who deregulated the building industry in the same way as they deregulated the financial markets at about the same time. In that instance, they got rid of what were called the London Model Bylaws, which traced their history all the way back to the Great Fire of London and had prevented the use of combustible materials as, as an external facade material in London from then until the 1980s. And, and Thatcher got rid of that and replaced it with what are called performance-based standards. So post-Thatcher, Builders are legally obliged to ensure a building adequately resists the spread of fire, but it's up to them as industry to decide how best to do that. And so it's this kind of change around in philosophy to say, instead of the state telling you what to do, industry can decide what to do. You just have to make sure it's okay. And at the same time, you remove the kind of oversight role of building control inspectors. You allow people to, to reduce costs. And the consequences are fairly inevitable. I mean, the, there was a report written at the time that we'll probably have a major disaster within 30 years. And that, that was eight that she um, brought that regulation in in 2017 when Grenfell happened, so it was only two years out. Yeah, again, it seems like there's a lot of premonition and everyone seems to know that something drastic was going to go wrong, but they don't seem to have wanted to do anything about it. But what was, like, sort of New Labour's role in this? So, obviously, we, we had Tories... Tories in power with Thatcher and then Tories in power still now. And then there was a period of new Labour in the middle. Obviously, loads of people argue that there wasn't actually a break from Thatcherism that stayed there. So what was the new Labour's role in changing the building regulations? Did they do anything good or was it more much of the same? There's not, yeah. I mean, I mentioned a moment ago the test in 2001 and that's that test report is delivered to Nick Rainsford who reports to John Prescott, who's Deputy Prime Minister under Blair's first government. They... Well, they called it better regulation. They didn't have quite the same sort of message about the regulation as that did, but the impact was the same. And so probably that test in 2001 and a, a, a parliamentary inquiry into cladding risks in 1999 were the most obvious opportunities we had really to stop this fire happening. Those were the moments when government officials looked at the risk of overcladding high-rise buildings with combustible materials and had the opportunity to decide whether to regulate or not to regulate. And at, at, at that point, they were warned that the UK, if it didn't impose higher standards for building materials, would become Europe's dumping ground for combustible cladding products because the rest of Europe was raising standards. But under that government's philosophy, that wasn't something that happened. The new Labour government also introduced rules around the fire risk assessment of fire rise buildings where they refuse to impose any standards whatsoever on who can carry out a fire risk assessment. So you or I or anyone else in this room could go out tomorrow and sell our services to Bristol Council to risk assess their high rises and that would be entirely legal. 
And they were advised not to do that by the fire service and by any number of fire safety experts, but they, they went ahead and did it anyway because the alternative is imposing cost on industry. And in the event, Grenfell was risk assessed by a retired firefighter who had two weeks training, was responsible for 650 buildings in multiple occupancy in West London, had lied on his CV about his qualifications, was appointed because he was the cheapest contractor available and copy and pasted between risk assessments of different buildings. For example, he said that he didn't think Grenfell's balconies or pigeon netting provided a fire risk. And anyone who's ever seen a picture of Grenfell Tower knows it doesn't have any balconies or pigeon netting. But that is the standard of fire risk assessment in, in social housing, not just in West London, but across the board. And we have that standard of fire risk assessment because when those rules were introduced in 2005, the government that introduced them didn't think it wanted to impose too much cost on property owners. So in this story, there's lots of arguments to be had about how exactly New Labour was different from the governments that have come before and after it. But in this story, it's a pretty consistent line of prioritising deregulation and prioritising freedom for industry over human safety. Yeah, it's just, it's really haunting that, yeah, at so many points, as you've said, we don't have the chance to do something and they still didn't do it. You also, how much of this tragedy comes into the fact that Grenfell was a block predominantly housing, social tenants. So obviously there's, well, still is a lot of prejudice towards people who live in social housing. People always look down upon different councils not really wanting to do right by these tenants that they should have a duty over. So yeah, how much of the negligence was because they're social tenants and they were viewed to be like worse than the richer people in Kensington? It's a, it's a really interesting question there. It's one that comes up a lot in relation to this story. And it's a tricky one to answer. One of the examples I give in that, context is a, a building called New Providence Wharf, which is on the other side of London. It, ha- it was found after the fire to have materially the same cladding system as Grenfell Tower, but it took more than five years for that material to be removed. It also had major issues with fire doors, major issues with smoke ventilation. And there was a fire there in 2021, which was very nearly fatal. Now that building is just on the doorstep of Canary Wharf and London's financial district. It's Riverside Apartments, which are primarily used by people who work in the city and have a kind of country home. It's sort of their weekday residence. And I've been there and there's kind of Lamborghinis and Bentleys and flats sell for sums in the millions. And yet it still ended up with the same fire safety defects as Grenfell. So you could look at it like that and say, actually, this isn't a class thing. Building regulations fail this badly. You've got premier in hotels, student blocks, all kinds of different buildings with dangerous materials on the outside. But then you have to consider pretty much every time there is a mass fatality fire, not just in this country, but around the world. A couple of months ago in Johannesburg, you saw dozens of people dying in, in a block that was mostly used for asylum seekers and immigrant workers. The Bronx fire in 2022 in New York, again, is the poorest people in the poorest neighborhood of New York. Europe's worst climbing fire before Grenfell was in Dijon in France, and that was also a block housing asylum seekers. Some of the buildings with the worst virus in the UK at the moment are temporary accommodation for homeless people. So class does seem to play a role. And I think what happens is in buildings where the poorest, most vulnerable people live, the risks add up. Fire safety is always about multiple failures and multiple risks coming together in one place to create a disaster. And even though you can find those risks in richer areas and in richer people's homes, you find all of them together in this one place where all of these kind of different types of discrimination overlap. And that's why these disasters keep happening to the poorest people. You mentioned in the book, even something so simple as like a lift override, being a much more complicated to operate one that the fire brigade couldn't operate on the night. Whereas actually, if they would have had a simpler one, maybe things would have been different, but they did because they thought that, oh, yeah, people are going to mess around with it. Uh, we don't want people to mess around with the lift, predominantly because they're, they're social tenants and that's sort of what they do. And it's like, actually, obviously, that could have made the outcome different. Yeah, and the lifts is one I talk about quite a lot, actually. If I ever come and speak to a social landlord about Grenfell, I always talk about the lifts because there's two, two issues with the lift at Grenfell Tower. One is that it's not a firefighting lift. So we all know you shouldn't use a lift during a fire, but firefighters can if you've got the right type of lift. So that would be one where it's inside a protected shaft. It has its own power supply so that if the building's power supply cuts out, it can keep running. 
and it has an escape hatch at the top. And if you've got a lift like that in the building, firefighters can use it, even though the building's on fire, to effect rescues. Grenfell didn't have that, despite this lift being replaced in 2006. And the reason it didn't have it is because the council believe that residents, young people, would open up the lift hatch and lift them. There's no evidence for that, but it's what they thought. It wasn't even about cost. They believed that there was a risk of antisocial behaviour. And also, as you mentioned, there was a key mechanism. Rather than having a kind of simple triangular key, they had a complicated drop key mechanism which failed on the night. And that was because they believed residents would get skeleton keys of eBay and take the lift out of service. Um, and w- what's particularly scary about that is when the lift contractors came to the Grenfell Tower inquiry to give evidence, one of them said that they'd never seen a fully operational firefighting lift in any council housing block ever. Now, what happened on the night at, at, at Grenfell Tower was a lot of people evacuated the building quite early. A group of three people. So the firefighters, if they'd have been able to turn that key, would have taken the lift out of service to the residents would have been entirely under the firefighter's control. But they weren't able to do that because the lift key mechanism didn't work. Three people tried to escape the building, got into the lift, it malfunctioned, and its doors opened on the 10th floor. And at that point on the 10th floor, the smoke was so thick that it would cause collapse within 35 seconds and death within two minutes. And all three of those people died. And if the lift had been taken out of service, they would have walked down the stairwell and out of the building and would be alive today. And so those decisions, which related wholly to stigmatisation and social housing tenants, directly caused three deaths on night. And linking to further discrimination, you touched on like the difficulties disabled residents of Grenfell had on the night, and the fact that none of them have personal evacuation plans. Could you go into more detail about that? Yeah, so disabled residents in Grenfell Tower died at, at, at twice the rate of the able-bodied population of the tower. Often, not just in terms of class and race, but often the victims of a fire have an additional vulnerability that means that they find it harder to evacuate. It isn't a coincidence that it was mothers and children that primarily died at Lacanau House because it's harder to evacuate with a baby. You're less likely to take the risk of walking through a smoke-filled environment if you're caring for a child. And so there's a disproportionate number of children killed at Grandfield, there's 18 children killed, and there's a disproportionate number of disabled people because, again, you're unlikely or less likely to take the risk and less likely to survive if you do take the risk evacuating through a dangerous environment. Personal emergency evacuation plans means there is a plan made as best as possible taking into account your disability get you out of a building in an emergency. If you're in a workplace, it's a legal requirement that you have one. So every disabled person, when they start a workplace, so long as HR is, is operating properly, will get a personal emergency evacuation plan which involves a workplace body who will maybe help them into an evacuation chair or provide a guiding arm if they're blind or whatever else to help them get out of the building when the fire alarm goes. But when that disabled person goes home from their work to their place of residence, the, the, the requirement to provide a personal emergency evacuation plan ceases. What we've also done over the years with social housing is focus on building high-rise properties and not focus on adapting and developing properties that are suitable for people as they get older and if they have disabilities. As a result, we've put lots and lots of disabled people in high-rise buildings. We haven't made a plan for them to get out. And so on the night at the Grenfell Tower, the, 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 the council had got no information recorded about the flats that disabled people lived in. It made no plans to their escape. And not only did they die at a higher rate than anyone else in the building, their family members died as well because people wouldn't leave their disabled grandmother, husband, child to escape the building themselves. What's particularly troubling about that is that at the end of the first phase of the Grenfell Tower Inquiry, which was right back in October 2019, one of the key recommendations was that personal emergency evacuation plans should become law, just as they are in the office place for high-rise residential buildings. The government said unequivocally that they would implement every single recommendation of the first phase of the Grenfell Tower Inquiry. That recommendation is the only sole one that they have openly said they won't implement. They've said it would not be proportionate, it would be too costly, and they've said that there's a risk that the attempt to evacuate disabled people would compromise the ability of able-bodied people to escape from an emergency. And the Home Office announced that they were doing that, I think, three weeks before the fifth anniversary of the fire. 
they faced really legal challenges, but as yet haven't changed their life. I mean, one of the, the, the stories I talk about in the book is Athena Afra Sahabi, who previous to, the, to living in Grenfell Tower, lived in social housing in another part of Kensington, in a building which had, I think, this is pulling this off the top of my head, but I think 40 steps to walk up to get to her house and no lift. And she had, she had a arthritis, which was getting progressively worse as she got older. And she was waiting a long time for the council to move her into more appropriate accommodation. She was eventually offered the 15th, a flat on the 15th floor of Grenfell Tower. And she didn't want to take it because she didn't think she'd be able to get out in an emergency. And her family members didn't want her to take it for the same reason. But the council said to her that she'd be intentionally homeless if she refused it and she would be struck off the wings. And so the choice she was faced with was continue to live in a home with 40 steps up where you are increasingly housebound or go to a building which is on the 15th floor but at least has a lift, like you say, level access. She had a report from her, her GP which said she should not be housed in any property above the second floor and she was put on the 15th. And she died in the fire and she died with her sister, who is one of the people who didn't want to leave um, their relative in the tower alone. This speaker series is part of the Cable's new Beyond the Bullshit campaign, our biggest membership drive yet. It's so clear that people are tired of corporate news that thrives on profit, sensationalism, has no integrity. We need members to keep proper journalism alive and show that people-powered media can work. So sign up to be a member today for as little as a pound a month at thebristolcable.org forward slash join. So one of the lasting impressions that the book made is that not much was actually being done in the aftermath of Grenfell. The government's saying that they're doing stuff. But what is the stuff that they're doing actually going to make a material difference on people's lives? Yeah, so stuff has happened. I think everything good that's happened has been something that somebody has had to fight for. And an example of that is simply removing the same planning that's on Grenfell from other social housing tower blocks. Because after the fire, we found around 180, I think, social housing tower blocks, which I focused on social housing first because that is the government's responsibility to, to fix those buildings. And Theresa May's government, which was in power uh, at, at the time, initially refused to put any money up at all. And she said councils and housing associations should do it out of their own resources, which means residents rent. And there was an enormous pushback towards that from the community and various organisations that support them. And they were able to embarrass Theresa May enough that they've got 500 million pounds out for, for that work to be done. Now, that's the most minimal step that could be taken, but it is significant. There's a building not far from where I live, actually, in East London, called Ferrier Point, which had the same flooding as Grandville, actually fitted by the same building company, and it had very similar building safety defects on the inside as well. It's almost like a mirror image of Grandville on the other side of the city. That building finished its remediation to take that cladding off in, I think, February 2020. And there was an enormous fire in March 2020. Ooh. So we got within a month of having a repeat of Grenfell in East London. And the only reason that didn't is because people were able to successfully pressure Theresa May's government to get some money to take that cladding off other buildings. So I don't like to say there's been nothing done. But the problem is that Every step forward has been grudging and partial and fought for. And quite simple things that could make a difference, we're still waiting for. Like, it's not just six years since Grenfell, it's now a decade since the coroner looking into the Lacanoe House death said we should put sprinklers in all of our aging social housing tower blocks. No government has put a penny into that since. Neither is anybody promising to. 80% of social housing high-rises still don't have sprinklers. 88% still don't have fire alarms. We're still entirely reliant on the building performing in the same way that it was designed to when it was built 40 or 50 years ago, and therefore it being safe for everybody to stay put, despite all of the work and all of the years of deterioration that these buildings have experienced. And the Building Safety Act has some good changes in there. There's some quite severe criminal penalties for people who mismanage buildings, and that's good. 
but it's not making the changes to the construction industry that would really make a difference. People are still procuring jobs on the lowest price. People are still using materials that probably aren't going to be safe and building methods that might not be safe. There's still not enough oversight of what's actually happening on building sites, especially when we're building high-rise buildings or buildings for vulnerable populations. I'm always reluctant to, to be too cynical and say nothing's been done because some people have dedicated the last six years to, to, to seeing that there has been some change and they've had some big wins in the face of both the government and, and the sort of lobbying organisation that didn't want it to happen. But it's far from enough. And unfortunately, I still expect every time I log onto Twitter and see someone patting me in a picture of a tower block on fire, that we're going to see a repeat because the fundamental issues which led to Grenfell are all still present. Definitely. And we've fired, but we've seen... Over the last few years, there have been similar fires in tower blocks in Bristol. Again, I think it's not the same, they're not the same cladding as Grenfell, but slightly different, but it's still like super combustible. And yeah, there was a fire in um, our house where one person died because they were trying to escape out of a window and sadly fell to their death. And then there was another one exit house, which was actually arson. But again, was the, the spread of the fire was helped along the way by this different type of cladding that, yeah, wasn't the same one as Grenfell, but still people knew it was combustible, and I think the council knew about it as well. I think most of the Bristol Tower books are based on the cables reporting, which I obviously trust intrinsically, but the, uh, the cladding material that's mostly been raised in Bristol is expanded polystyrene. And expanded polystyrene sounds a little bit like something you make a takeaway box out of, and it is, it's the same plastic. It was legal because it wasn't in a ventilated cavity. And there was a loophole in building regulations that allowed you to use combustible materials so long as they weren't in a ventilated cavity. The idea was that they'd be packed between two brick structures instead of just sitting on the outside of the building. But because it was written badly like that, builders took advantage of it and covered lots of buildings in polystyrene. It's been tested in Australia, never tested in the UK, and it performed equivalently badly to the value that was used in the protocol. Briefly on e-bikes, because I remember that fire well and there's been many more. It is a risk that is changing things in terms of fire safety. Those e-bikes are quite dangerous. There's no regulation, no British standard for the type of batteries and the type of battery conversions, the type of charges which those bikes come with. And again, it's a it's an issue that's primarily affecting poorer people because the people who are most reliant on e-bikes in the modern economy are our people who do deliveries for a living. And that is the sort of, in the gig economy, that is the kind of, the, the easiest available working class job, but they're using a product which might get them in their sleep because we are not properly regulating the lithium battery market. And you mentioned there's arson as well. I do think like sometimes when a fire starts by arson or starts by a barbecue or a dropped cigarette or something, it's quite tempting to think, oh, well, actually it's the fault of the person who, who had the barbecue or started the fire, but buildings should be designed for fires to happen. Like you build a building to stand for a hundred years, it is inevitable in that time that something is going to catch fire. And the building should be designed for everybody to, to leave safely in that event. And if it isn't, it doesn't really matter how it started. It's not an excuse for the building owners to say, oh, well, this was arson. They are legally obliged to design their buildings in a way that even if a fire is started intentionally, people can leave safely. And the fire safety guidance we have in this country is so sort of focused on stay put that social landlords will actually remove communal fire alarms if they take over a block. So they take over a block and find it's got a communal fire alarm and they will send workmen around to take it out. And the reason is because our guidance places so much emphasis on staying put in a fire. And the thing is, it, that is a, it's fine as a plan A. Like it does work as a plan A. If the fire doesn't spread outside the flat that it starts in, it's a good fire strategy. The problem is you can't guarantee that happening all the time. And you need to come up with a plan B for what to do when it doesn't. And we are almost unique globally in not having that. Most countries will know how to evacuate buildings and will have a plan for evacuating buildings if they need to. It's just a bit of British exceptionalism. We think our engineers are so good that they will always produce safe buildings and those buildings will still be safe 100 years after they were built. And how rigidly have like five gates around the countries? start with a state of policy because I know London Fire Brigade 
or during the crisis and before are very, very rigid and very much backing up this policy. It does vary. It's a weird thing about firefighting policy in Britain that a lot of people don't realise is that if you go across the boundaries of different fire authorities, the way they're going to fight fires is going to be completely different. There isn't actually a central body that sets firefighting policy, and that is one of the problems in terms of changing it. Some fire authorities, Kent, for example, and the Humberside Fire and Rescue Service have, and Greater Manchester as well, actually, have taken a more nuanced approach, have thought about working out alternatives to stay put strategies in buildings where they think it's necessary, have engaged with the idea of peeps and, and what they can do to get disabled people out of buildings if they need to. Other fire authorities. London's got a bit better since it, Danny Cotton left and Andy Rowe took over. But yeah, it does change fire fire authority to fire authority, and that is a bit of a problem. Yeah, no, definitely. And as you said, having that flexibility is so important. Like in your book, you mentioned like during the fire, when the stay put policy was finally revoked, there were people who were calling up the fire brigade 40 minutes after that, who then still hadn't, who still weren't told to leave the building. Yeah, it's a funny thing, like globally speaking, Grenfell isn't that unusual in terms of the fire. The Middle East had a, had a little spate of them where there was pretty much one a year. There was even one in, in Chechnya, when, which the, the building ended up looking almost the same as Grenfell because it spread laterally all the way around the building like at Grenfell. But the difference is all of those fires are nil fatality. The only fire that's, that's come close to killing as many people as Grenfell was one in China, and that was a building that was under construction which is a slightly different question in terms of how quickly it's going to spread and how easy it is to, to, for people to escape. The reason Grenfell is a mass fatality event instead of just a, a lost building is because there was no evacuation plan. So in some ways, the whole Grenfell story is a failed evacuation. And it's such a critical point for us, if we genuinely mean it when we say we don't want to see this happen again, Understanding how best to evacuate buildings is the problem that needs to be solved. But it's just one that there's such a institutional reluctance to engage with, in particularly in the Home Office and particularly with the advisors that they employ, that we have just made no progress on it in six years, which is extraordinary. So Bristol and the whole of Britain were in a grip of the housing crisis. How can we link like the failures of Grenfell, which, I don't know, to the surface might just look like a cladding failure, an evacuation failure, as you said, to the failures in the wider housing system that we're seeing right now? Um, it's one thing having rules, and it's another thing having rules which, which particularly landlords actually abide by. How do you get your landlord of a HMO to license the property and abide by HMO licensing rules? How do we get... The renters reform bill, which is coming through, contains a lot of new rights for renters, but what do they mean if they're going to be enforced by a local authority, which has two environmental health officers and 20,000 private rented homes? And so I think one of the reasons why the companies involved in refurbishing Grenfell Tower acted in the way they did is because they believed there'd be no consequences. They didn't think that bending and even breaking the rules mattered because they didn't expect anybody to ever hold them to account for it. And it is just in the end true that if you want people to behave, you occasionally have to enforce the rules. And I think that in terms of the housing crisis and the conditions that people face in, in, in rented accommodation, whether it's private or social, a huge part of the problem is that the rules that we've 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 got in terms of homes fit for, for human habitation, the, the various kind of types of health hazard, you know, that kind of thing, just aren't enforced. And so, yeah, I mean, it's a funny thing. The government's talking a lot about law and order at the moment, and I suppose I agree, but I just think that it's law and order for landlords and large corporations that we're lacking. Yeah, definitely, and it seems very much down to the tenant to try and better their situation rather than a more proactive approach from landlords. So like, it's quite rare for you to hear, oh, suddenly the council's going around for an inspection. It's only if you've done that yourself and if you're in a really horrible situation and quite a lot of people don't want to report their issues uh, because they're just like, oh, well, nothing's going to get done. It's a lot of effort on me. Sometimes it has to go to court. It feels like sometimes there's not much that can be done yeah. and landlords are just getting away left, right and centre with things like much like 
like Kensington and Chelsea Council, like the Tenement Management Organisation did as well. I think it's an important thing to remember with Grenfell is that the residents did organise and they did campaign and they did pull every lever that they had available to try and get the conditions of their building improved, but still the, the building stayed in the condition it was. And there is a place for, you know, sort of local organisation and um, tenant groups um, coming together to hold landlords to account. But they need to have some available weapons to fight back with, whether it's regulations or courts that you can access without having to pay for uh, an enormously expensive barrister. If, if those things don't exist, the power balance between landlords and, and tenants is, is just too heavily on the landlord side for people to really have any chance of changing their circumstances. Councils are compromised in this situation because a lot of the kind of worst landlords in any area, but I'm sure it's true in Bristol, it's certainly true in parts of London and other parts of the country where there's a really high housing need, are the only landlords who will take homeless residents who need temporary accommodation. So the councils become totally reliant on these landlords and then their enforcement teams cannot <laughs> act against them and drive them out of business because then there's nowhere else for them to house homeless families. And that's the position that we've managed to get ourselves into, but that comes back to a lack of counting really. Because if you make yourself reliant on a sort of small army of quite unscrupulous private landlords to provide housing to people, then it's quite hard to enforce against them. But if you have enough council housing that you're not reliant on them anymore, then suddenly it's actually quite an easy question to answer. You just, you just beef up the enforcement team and send them around. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, like a huge issue with lack of council homes not just lack of council homes being built, but also like a net loss in council homes with like the continuation of right to buy. And so councils, they'll build council homes over the years, but then more and more of them will be lost to the private sector. And we're seeing, as you said, like severe shortage in emergency accommodation. So like when the council has reason to believe that someone's homeless and is in one of the priority groups, they have a legal duty to provide that person with emergency accommodation while they're doing their checks check if they actually fulfill all of these criteria and they just don't offer people emergency accommodation anymore so people are there like either threatened with homelessness or literally street homeless while the council's doing their inquiries when actually they they should be in what's well, safer emergency accommodation but there just isn't enough anymore yeah it's interesting isn't it because it's obviously the, the sort of big talking point of the week was um Stuella Braverman tweets about rough sleepers and her claim that there is help available if you ask for it. And every piece of research that's been done into that area says it's not. Most people who, who, who charities encounter sleeping rough have at some point sought help from the local authority and been turned away, either because they, they're, they're considered intentionally homeless or because they, for some reason, don't have a local connection or simply because the council has said no. It's quite well demonstrated that actually Sometimes there isn't help available for people, and, and, and that's it's why we're seeing so many people sleeping in tents. It's funny, actually, because the, the homelessness legislation that we have in the UK, this idea that everybody should be helped and should be provided with support is... Lots of other countries do not have that strong legislation, but what we don't have is adequate levels of available affordable housing. And so the legislation, again, is meaningless because if local authorities can't afford to house people, then they do gatekeep their services and turn people away. Yeah, definitely. So if you have power to change things in this country, what are the main things that you'd put in place? Firstly, in terms of like fire safety, but then just secondly, in terms of improving how you've solved the housing crisis in this country? I mean, I think the thing is, the, the, the biggest impact thing you could do in terms of fire safety is just bit sprinklers and fire alarms. We have so many kind of long and complicated debates about exactly how to achieve regulation and improve competence in the built environment sector and all that sort of stuff. But sprinklers and evacuations are layers of protection that are there and available if everything else screws up. And they're relying on around the world. And I basically don't, I don't trust any sort of government plan that doesn't have those in because you measure how seriously the government is taking this in the number of sprinkler systems it's paid for. And at the moment it's none. I think in terms of the broader housing crisis, I think the housing benefit system, if you change local housing allowance rates and allow people to claim local housing allowance rates at a level that reflected, genuinely reflected the rents in local areas, 
you would make an enormous difference overnight. That's, that's the quickest way to, to alleviate the most suffering. Long, the long-term answer to all of these questions, to, to the reason why disabled people find themselves in high-rise buildings that are not appropriate for their needs through to the inability of councils to find decent accommodation for homeless families is a lack of council housing. We have in, in the year I was born, I think in London, twice to three times as much council housing as New York. And in the 35 years that have elapsed since, that has either been sold off, demolished or neglected to the point where it's no longer habitable. And that's the mistake we've made. And so many of our problems come back to that. Private landlords would lose their power if council housing was available again. We wouldn't need them. So that's it, really. There's lots and lots of pages and pages of reports written about how to solve the housing crisis and how to make homes more affordable and all these kind of clever, crazy ideas. We don't need them. We figured it out after World War II. Just build loads of council housing and problem stabilising. It's, it's an expectation of most of us that the state provides an education system for all children and that the state provides healthcare for all of us. And we get very angry if either of those two things are disrupted or unavailable. And for some reason, we don't look at housing in the same way, despite the fact that it being, if anything, more core to your well-being. Why have we changed our minds about the idea that as a society, we should provide municipal housing? And I think losing that belief collectively is a problem and it's, it's something that we, we need to change our minds about again. So we've talked a lot about the issues that the country is facing, that housing crisis issues, but what practically can we all do in this room to fight for a better housing system? I think, I don't know, I think one of the things that, probably the, the campaigner who's made the most difference in this, the years I've been writing about housing is a guy called Quajo Tuanabar from an estate in southwest London. He's a fantastic guy and a brilliant communicator, and he's younger than I am and understands how to use social media platforms I've never even heard of. But fundamentally, he hasn't done much more complicated than record the conditions that people face and post them to a large audience. And I think that in some ways it is the most powerful thing that people can do is embarrass and publicise the bad conditions that they and their neighbours are facing. Um, Quajo has made a big difference to the people he tried to help and the more the kind of structures can be built to help other people do that, the the more powerful people will get. You know, we, we all have now cameras in our pocket and access to a platform to post material and, and I think that's probably a place where you can start to build some sort of movement. Yeah, definitely. And I think also if you have the capacity like joining campaign groups, we're very lucky in Bristol that we're quite a radical city and there's groups campaigning for different things like in communities, but and there's also ACORN, the community union who've done really awesome work. So definitely like joining your local union if you can getting together with other tenants and organising is really vital. And then obviously at the back, there's the Bristol Fair Renting campaign doing work around rent controls and really holding the council to account within their structures, but also engaging with renters across the city. So it's like, if you can, if you have the ability, join up with other tenants, join up with other renters, because like together we have power and together we can try and hold the people to account and have the power to make the legislative changes that we have, but also have the power to make the conditions in our homes better. We initially got road controls in Britain because of collective action in Glasgow. There was a rent strife by women whose husbands were fighting in World War One, and landlords tried to put the rent up at that point and they refused to pay. And that single movement led to rent control, which remained in place until 1988. And so there is a power to collective organisation and movement, yeah. Yeah. So I've got one more question. So what can we do to ensure that the tragedy of Grenfell is never forgotten or sidelined? Because obviously it happened in 2017 and it seems as the years have gone on, it's gone less and less out of the public consciousness. So what can we do to make sure that Grenfell always stays in our hearts and minds and is always, we're always using that to influence policy and make sure that these things don't happen again? Yeah, um, it is strange how the sort of collective memory has seemed to move on quite quickly from Grenfell. To me, this was a kind of, this was a kind of nation-defining event. It's the biggest peacetime loss of life in fire since World War II. It's the, the, the biggest loss of life in a single event in the country since Hillsborough. And it, it says so much about the kind of political culture and economy that we'd arrived in in 2017. 
when you look into why it happened. And yet it doesn't seem to have stayed in people's memories. I think if people drew a timeline of the, the, the 2010s, they talk about austerity and Brexit, but Grenfell wouldn't quite be there. It seems to be an anomaly in, in people's memories. And I think that's a problem, really. There's been a push by some of the groups of bereavement survivors to make the anniversary of the fire a national Grenfell Day. And I think that's quite a good idea. I think that would be a way to make sure that there's an annual reminder of what happened and why, and that they're still waiting for justice. And I don't necessarily think the government's going to do that, but that is something that people could do, independently of whether or not it's officially recognised. I also think that just talking about and understanding these issues, you know, fire safety is such an important issue. It's not widely understood, especially people who, who, who need that knowledge to push back against the conditions they're living in might not have access to it. So spreading that knowledge around as widely as possible, especially in communities that might be might be at risk of that sort of fire, is something that, that sort of people and organisations can do to help. But I think generally, I just think it needs to have its place in our collective memory. There was a fire in the Isle of Man, Sutherland, which killed 50 people in the 1970s, I think. And that was almost entirely forgotten. I only found out about that after Grenfell, but it's the, 50 people killed in an amusement arcade. And it, yeah, it just disappears. And when it disappears, it happens again, because that was a building that was clad with combustible plastic. And yeah, so I, I think that it collectively, we need to hold on to Grenfell as part of our history, the history of the country that we've lived through and not exceptionalize or forget about it. Yeah, definitely. Right. Thank you so much, Peter, for talking to me. I think this brings us to the end of the first half of the event. Join us for our next event, Impartiality and Journalism, with award-winning journalist Hamza Syed, co-host of the New York Times and Serial's hit podcast, The Trojan Horse Affair. The live stream event will take place on the 27th of November at 7pm, with the podcast coming soon after. Find tickets at bristolcable.org forward slash events with discounted tickets for members. Thanks for listening.